is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So much to talk about, but I got to say, Tim, I've been thinking about this a lot this week in particular, and how for many of us, we're coming up on kind of our one year mark in terms of dealing with COVID. For a lot of people, that's when they started, you know, a year ago, working from home specifically. Uh, it's hard to get my, you know, head around that it's been a year. Uh, I know it's a cliche. I remember it like yesterday. For me, it was March 11th. I was out to dinner with my mom. She wow. was visiting from California um, and my wife, We, uh, who, who lives in New York with me. <laughs> she was not visiting from California. <laughs> we came back from dinner, Carol. This was the last time we had dinner in a restaurant. Uh, we saw in the news that Tom Hanks had tested positive for the virus and the NBA had canceled its season. That That's when it one. hit me. Yeah, for us, Friday the 13th was the last time we had a guest in studio one year ago. All right, so let's get an update on where we are, what he is seeing. So glad to have back with us Dr. Stephen Corwin. He's president and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, who, as you might recall, I think last time he was on, we, we talked about what the New York Times has called him, uh, the CEO at the center of New York's coronavirus crisis. That's what they said about a year ago. He joins us on the phone in New York City. Dr. Corwin, so nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. Um, how are you? We, I think, talked with you in last December, so about three months ago. How are you doing? What's changed since then? Well, you know, unfortunately for New York City, it seems to be anomalous compared to a lot of the declines we're seeing in the rest of the country. What we've seen was a secondary surge uh, that started in that December time frame. Uh, and we still have a lot of COVID patients in the hospital and a lot of sick COVID patients in the hospital. So although we're at about 30 to 35 percent of where we were at that horrendous peak in the April time frame, uh, we still have a lot of patients in the ICU. We're still living with the virus. And the positivity rate in New York City still is hovering in that 5 percent range. So it still doesn't really feel good in terms of what our emergency rooms and ICUs are seeing. So hopefully, uh, with, the, uh, with the vaccine, as we get more people vaccinated, uh, the quicker we get people vaccinated, the less likely one of these uh, variants uh, uh, will escape the vaccine and we can get back to normal. But right now we're seeing a plateau at a level that we're not really happy with, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's some really disconcerting news. And and my question is, is why? I mean, we did learn today that new virus variants account for 51% of New York City's COVID cases. That's what health officials said at a briefing on Wednesday. We, we know that these are more infectious than older strains of the virus. Is this why this is happening in New York? I think so. I mean, you know, it, it, all of this becomes speculative because we're not testing every single sample, but it looks like uh, the British variant is the dominant variant. We've seen some South African variant uh, with our own genetic testing uh, when we do sampling. Um, so I, I think that that's probably it. The more disturbing thing is that uh, the percentage in the ICUs has gone up, and, and that means that, you know, the, the number of people who are quite critically ill has gone up. Um, so even with the South African variant, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, people did not end up in the hospital. 
and did not end up in the ICU. So I think that's going to be the critical thing, uh, making sure that people don't end up in the hospital, even if the positivity right. rate um, is high. Dr. Corona, are the demographics the same? Is it older people? Is it minorities in terms of the more severe cases or the majority it's of somewhat, cases? It's a somewhat younger skew, Okay. Mm-hmm. in part because I think that uh, thank God the nursing home uh, patients and a lot of elderly patients have already gotten the vaccine, so that's good. Um, and we're, you know, uh, I know that younger people are at lower risk, but we see a lot of uh, young people in the ICU. So everyone's got to be, particularly people, uh, young people who are have high body mass indices or are obese um, or pre-diabetic and diabetic. So, uh, so that's uh, that's of concern. You know. <laughs> Uh, I heard you two anecdotes about uh, about what you recall. My recollection uh, of that date was, you know, on March 8th, believe it or not, March 8th of last year, we had four COVID cases in our entire health system, which has 3,600 beds. By March 15th, we had 66 patients. By March 22nd, we had 590 patients. And by March 23rd, we had 1,600 patients. So you you recall that dramatic slope, and for those of us in New York, how absolutely horrific it is. But my recollection of that week was actually this very day, uh, my chief operating officer, Dr. Laura Faris, called her contacts uh, in the archdiocese and said, you don't really plan to go ahead with the St. Patrick's Day parade, do you? (laughs) And if you recall, that Friday before the St. Patrick's Day, uh, they canceled it. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, we all sort of rolled into it thinking, let's hope for the best. And it was really horrific. That's how we realized I, those things, when things started getting canceled, when we started seeing major sports getting canceled, that's how we knew um, specifically that things were, you know, absolutely coming undone. Uh, it was hard to, you know, to, you felt the, le- you know, how, how heavy this all was and how real it was. The weight of it. Yeah, right? exactly. The weight of it. Or, or walking outside with a mask on and yeah. saying, am I going to be safe if I go to the grocery store? I mean, we weren't even wearing so masks, look, though. I, right? <laughs> yeah. I remember going to D'Agostino's and picking up some staples, people not being able to get toilet paper or paper towels and people now going to Fresh Direct as opposed to going to a grocery store. So I don't think we're going to get back to those days. And I don't mean to be a doom and gloom person, but I'd like to see it come down quicker than what it has. And um, I'm very concerned about people thinking, okay, masks off, restaurants full blare, let's, yeah. let's, let's go back to normal. I don't think you can go to zero and 100 uh, in, a, in a second. Well, I hope everybody downloads. I have downloads. a lot of respect for the, yep. I have a lot of respect for the CDC director, Dr. Walensky, and right. I think she's right. We've got to be careful. Tim and I just mentioned uh, a tweet put out by New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy about how he and the New York Governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo, just announcing that both New Jersey and New York City will both expand indoor dining capacity to 50%, 5-0% beginning March 19th, and I had a little sarcasm in there about it feels like all right everything's okay but as we know and just heard from dr stephen corwin president and ceo over at new york presbyterian hospital uh, the numbers still in the new york metro area are troubling dr corwin when you hear announcements like that from the new jersey governor uh, along with the new york uh, governor does it make you a little bit nervous here yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that we've been through a horrific uh, crisis in terms of the economy and especially in terms of the restaurant industry uh, and, and travel and leisure, et cetera. So I understand 
the need for some of these businesses to survive uh, and for us to try to open the economy. Having said that, the open, you're titrating the opening versus the number of infections. And we know that indoor dining is a big locus for infections. And so mask wearing and indoor dining, uh, making sure you're wearing masks and being careful about indoor dining is really uh, important. I can tell you, I, I still would not feel comfortable going out to a restaurant myself. Um, I'm sure some people will. Um, but I think we've got to be very, very cautious about how quickly we open this up. Uh, as as uh, Dr. Sharfstein has said, you've got to push the virus down to very low levels so that when it reemerges, we can handle it. Uh, I think that's really important. I think that uh, Governor saying let's rip off the masks and go back to 100% full business is a mistake. I think uh, President Biden called it, uh, you know, that they were Neanderthals. I think that's an insult to Neanderthals, to be honest wow. with you. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I, I really feel strongly that we've got to be careful over these next couple of months. I know it's been a long time. I know everyone wants to see their children, their grandchildren get back to some sort of normality. But, boy, if we can... Uh, vaccinate everybody in the next few months, and I think the J&J vaccine and the production of it and Pfizer and Moderna coming, uh, I think we'll be a lot better off. So I would just urge everybody to still be very cautious. Hey, Dr. Corwin, what about people who've been vaccinated? I, I, I can definitely understand the feeling of somebody who's been vaccinated, maybe for a few weeks. It's been a few weeks since they got their second dose. They could feel safe going out to dinner, right? And, and this could be for them. Well, yeah, I think I think there are a couple of things. First, um, I think that uh, you want you can. It's easy, as the CDC has said, easy to congregate with people that have been vaccinated, and you can start to congregate people that are that are low risk. We still don't know whether you can get the virus and be uh, uh, asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic and infect other people. Um, and you still want to get to the point of, of herd immunity. But sure, if you've been vaccinated, you're going to feel a whole hell of a lot more comfortable uh, than, uh, than before. But we really have to get the whole population vaccinated to, to be effective. But, of course, um, you know, you want to be in a situation where you're protecting others, protecting yourself. I wouldn't regard getting vaccinated as a passport to do whatever mm. the hell you want to do. Wow. Do you- what hope do you have that we get enough people vaccinated that we can see herd immunity? Just got about 40 seconds here. And how, how quickly? I'd be, I'm very hopeful. You Look, are? Okay. I think the president has done a terrific job in accelerating what had happened under Operation Warp Speed. I thought Operation Warp Speed was terrific. Uh, and I think that with the Defense Production Act invocations, I think by uh, middle of May to end of May, I think we'll be, we, we could, if, if everyone gets vaccinated, I mm-hmm. think we can be in really good shape. Oh, we're going to end on that optimistic note. And I'm just going to tell you, you gave us the quote of the day about Neanderthals. <laughs> That's going to stay with us. <laughs> Dr. Corwin, thanks. stay well, be well. Uh, and thanks You as for, well. Thanks for, so much. You bet. Be well. Dr. Stephen Corwin, he's president and chief executive officer at New York Presbyterian Hospital on the phone in New York City. Uh, nice optimism to end up. And uh, What's good about a voice like that, it's it's very steady, it's even, and he's just telling us the numbers and what he's seeing, and it's hard not to be a little worried about still what's going on here in this area. The data don't lie. No, a, exactly. A 5%, a 5% positivity rate is nothing to be proud of. And like he said, New York City, something's happening here that's not happening in other areas. Yeah, right. And just like when you and I heard it, just put us a little bit on edge. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. 
from Bloomberg Radio. So this week, we've been talking about it, uh, Bloomberg Business Week featuring a deep dive into equality, the cover story of the issue about the individual who spent her career as a law professor documenting racism in a tax system that's supposedly, uh, that's supposedly colorblind. We're talking about the U.S. tax system. Yeah, we are. Joel Weber is editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the Access Line from Brooklyn. And Ben Steverman, he's the person who wrote the story, personal finance editor at Bloomberg News. Uh, Joel, I mean, I don't even know where to start because this issue well, is y- just so important. Um, talk a little bit about the equality issue. So um, we have relaunched a vertical at at Bloomberg called Equality, that it will be sort of the home for our ongoing coverage. And we wanted to help make a splash at Business Week as, as we launched that that initiative and that and that project. And so we, we really kind of like pulled together across the global newsroom to try and bring as many of, of these stories uh, to life as we could. And, and there were a couple in particular that stood out to me that were a little bit more US-centric that funny enough, both had to do with taxes. And yesterday we heard about Jason Grotto's story on on property tax um, and, and how it's effectively like a regressive tax. And there was another thing that caught our attention, which was Ben Steverman um, saying, hey, by the way, do you guys know about Dorothy Brown, um, who's got a book coming out? And I said, I, I have never heard of Dorothy Brown. Tell me more. And um, with that, I'll, I'll segue <laughs> over to Ben. Um, this is a professor, a legal, a legal tax expert, um, a law professor at Emory, um, and she spent decades basically ex- examining the U.S. tax code. And, and Ben, that's where it gets provocative. What has she found? Yeah, so she's um, an interesting person. Even before she became uh, a, a, an eminent professor of tax law, she grew up in the Bronx. She worked at Drexel Burnham Lambert back in the 80s. She's had a, a long career, but... Um, Since the 90s, she's been looking at different parts of the tax code and saying and really analyzing what is the impact this has on wealth, um, especially on the wealth of black people and the wealth of white people. And and the the, the part of the question is, you know, we've had a racial wealth gap between black and white in this country that really hasn't narrowed at all. So you see many more black people going to college, um, incomes uh, 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 going up. But the wealth of black folks is not keeping pace with – well, it is keeping pace, but it, it's, it's way, still way behind um, the, the wealth of, of white families. And so what she's concluded is that the tax code has um, a, a big part in, in that, especially the U.S. income tax. And a lot of these carve-outs in the income tax for retirement and homeownership and all sorts of other things that have been built into this supposedly progressive system that really end up in a situation where – a black person and a white person with similar incomes, uh, the black person can end up paying significantly more. How did she get there to this point? Because initially, I think her thinking, according to your story, is that, you know, thought, you know, tax code is going to be colorblind. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was her assumption when she decided to get into tax. She wanted to escape the whole issue of racism. Her original plan was to be um, following the footsteps of Thurgood Marshall and then she, you know, civil rights lawyer. And she said, I don't want to deal with that in my professional life. I just want to focus on this, this what seems like this colorblind system of all these intricate rules. The tax code doesn't even mention race, really. But she, she um, was part of a movement of people who, back in the 90s who really started to say, hey, there are these uh, other areas of the law. They were written, all these laws were written by white people, generations of white people, um, and, and, you know, 
is there some hidden racism there? And, and what she's really showing in her book is that the generations of lawmakers have built this system that's really optimized for white wealth, for people, for white people that are already wealthy and, and can end up magnifying the financial toll of things like labor market discrimination, a racist criminal justice system, um, housing market discrimination, especially because there's so many tax uh, incentives in the tax code for, for home ownership and, and um, but but black people do not benefit from that because because of the racist housing market. The fact that white people don't want to live um, in racially diverse neighborhoods really hurts the values of homes owned by black people. You know, Ben, you mentioned um, her book in there, which I think we failed to to set up at all. And worth mentioning that this is a forthcoming book. Um, and um, one that you've read, um, title is The Whiteness of Wealth. I think it's going to make a pretty big splash, and it, even the cover, I think. It may not rival the magazine's cover this week and our portrait of her, which is, I think, amazing, but I think it's a really provocative book, um, and you've read it, and you know one of the, the most interesting things that you, I think you hit on in your story is you know the history of the income tax actually in the U.S. and it wasn't always this way. I thought that was the most one of the most interesting takeaways from this. When the income tax was introduced in 1913, it looked a lot different then than it does now. What happened? Yeah, I mean, when you go back to the very beginning, it was a much simpler system where, um, and it was really focused on getting wealthy people to pay taxes. Um, and there was no joint filing, so married couples didn't. Get, right now, uh, if you're a married couple and you have a, one high earner, you get basically a tax break. And one of Brown's points is that the introduction of joint filing created this um, penalty for when you have two married couples who are both working and have similar incomes. That can really um, means they're paying a lot more, even though they're often working in much lower status jobs than the comparable uh, white professional whose whose spouse is staying home. So. Um, as sort of things have gone on, they introduced the 401k and, and, and health insurance became a, a, a much bigger part of uh, of the market. And, and health insurance is hugely subsidized right. for disproportionately white people. Um, as those things were introduced over time, she's saying there's there's been this huge um, carve right. out for, for white families. Well, I've got to say it's a must read. It's a deep dive. There's so much in this story. And I do want to point out that Dorothy Brown, uh, she's going to join us in a couple of weeks on Bloomberg Business Week on, on Bloomberg Radio. So we're looking forward to that. Thanks to you guys for, for hooking us up. Ben Steverman, cover story of the magazine, personal finance editor at Bloomberg. Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so we were all over this story yesterday when it broke. Uh, it was about the hacker group that says it wanted to show how much surveillance is out there in our world and how easy it was to breach it. Uh, great reporting, and it was a Bloomberg exclusive. It was. William Turton is the one who brought it to all of us and to all of you. He's cybersecurity reporter at Bloomberg News. Joining us on the phone from New York City. William, I'm, I'm still reeling from reading this story because it's terrifying in, in, in so many different ways. What did this group of hackers do? Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. So they uh, owned, as hackers say, they, they hacked this company in the worst possible way. They got into an account at this, this security camera company called Ricotta that allowed them to look through the cameras of all of its customers. And not only that, uh, they could look at the cameras live. 
Um, and they could also look at the archives of the videos that those customers had stored from those cameras. And in some cases, those cameras were using facial recognition technology, which the hackers could also interact with. How was that so easy? Well, uh, you know, it's it, obviously there's multiple investigations going on in, at the company right now to, to answer that question. But, you know, they got in through exposed uh, credentials. So, you know, a, a username and password for a so-called super admin account had been left out there publicly on the Internet. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's sloppy. Uh, it, it's bad security practice. Um, and that's how it happened. What do we know about about the group that that did this? Who is Tilly Cotman? Well, Tilly Cotman is a 21 year old uh, Swiss citizen who uh, kind of hacks with an anti-capitalist, anti-surveillance 21 uh, worldview. Um, and you know they uh, uh, seek to kind of shine a light on on what they see as a, a abuse of technology and then capitalism uh, gone too far. And I mean, that's what this is about, right? Shedding a light to say, hey, folks, I don't know if you're aware of it. You've all gotten so used to having cameras all around you, like we all have a camera on our phone. Uh, but did you realize what that really means? Right. And another aspect of this that really isn't being dis discussed much is like these hackers could have done some something much worse. They could have sat in the system for a long time and looked at all this confidential video. They could have you know, utilize these cameras to launch other hacks in the future. Um, they could have tried to hack the networks of Ricotta's uh, 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 customers, but they didn't do that. They came to a journalist and they blew the whistle. So Verkata, the company at the center of this, it's a startup that was founded back in 2016. It sells security cameras that customers can access through the web, obviously. <laughs> uh, they've raised $80 million uh, in, in, in as of January 2020. It values the company at $1.6 billion. What does this mean for the company? And what have you heard from the company since you published this? Well, obviously, it's terrible for the, the company's reputation, right? To have so many high-profile customers not only high-profile customers like Tesla and Cloudflare, right, be exposed in this, but also schools, hospitals, jails. Um, you know, it's terrible for the reputation. And, and, you know, they're a company that tries to sell their security as one of their features. Um, and, you know, what I'm hearing from the company is not much. They're um, um, doing an investigation and they've contacted law enforcement, but, you know, we haven't heard too much more. They, they restrict, the hackers no longer have access. They restricted the hackers from having access. What's interesting, William, too, is I think about what we have seen in terms of cybersecurity just in the last few months. Uh, China's global attack on Microsoft's popular email software, right? That was last week. Then, of course, the three months ago when we had, um, you know, the Russian attack uh, in terms of cybersecurity and that, you know, yeah. we're talking about the private sector. We're talking about public sector. You know, increasingly we are seeing how easy, I guess, it is or how you know, this is kind of our world that I'm trying to figure out, is it just that Tom Siebel, I talked to Tom Siebel yesterday, founder of Siebel Systems, C3AI, you know, just it's showing how unprepared we are in this world and how easy it is really for people to breach systems in, in different ways. Right. Well, you know, it, um, it, you, you make a good point. It kind of feels like, you know, me and my colleagues on the cybersecurity team here, we're not getting a lot of sleep lately. <laughs> You're busy. Because, yeah. Uh, right. Because these hacks keep coming and the kind of scale 
of these hacks are becoming in- increasingly large and they're and they're happening faster. Um, and you know, the hacks of, of SolarWinds and and uh, the Microsoft Exchange servers were done, you know, by state-backed intelligence operatives, most likely in in Russia and China. I mean, this is obviously a different breed, right? It's it's kind of a smaller scale, but the the impact is is you know, comparable and just kind of how jaw-dropping it is. Um, you know, so many of these systems that we rely on um, are just totally insecure, and the companies that sell them and build them aren't really that interested in securing them. Why, why is that, though? Like, why, why don't, wouldn't they want to make security a selling point? <laughs> well, it's kind of like, you know, you're getting away with it for a long time and you're not getting caught, right? Like, Cybersecurity is hard and it's expensive. And you're yeah. a startup, you want your margins to be good so you can keep raising money. You know, you want to sell, you want the numbers to go up and to the left, but if or up and to the right rather. But if you're if you're um, stopping to kind of build security and bake it into your products, it's expensive and it slows down your development. But you know, th- taking that approach can end in disaster like this. Do you feel like, William, since this is your world, you and your team, that this kind of a story, along with the other two stories that we've had so far in terms of cybersecurity breaches, that it's a wake up call that like corporate America governments are like, okay, wait a minute. You know, we just got off a health pandemic that there were lots of cues for years that this was coming. Um, Are we now realizing that we got to get ready and prepare ourselves against kind of the mega cyber attack that's likely going to come in just got about 30 seconds? Well, unfortunately, we've had many, many wake-up calls before, right? You know, mm. this isn't the first time we'd have a wake-up call. Um, you know, I think what we've seen from the Biden administration is they signal that they're going to try and take cybersecurity more seriously. But, you know, it's an extremely complex problem, and no one has a, a, a really great answer for it. All right. Well, get ready to be even busier. I'm just warning you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll be back here. And, you know, he, William, William says he doesn't sleep at night, but what he writes makes me not sleep at night. That's <laughs> so well said. <laughs> Uh, William Turton, really good story. Cybersecurity reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from New York City. It is definitely the world we're living in. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, you know, we talked yesterday about uh, Disney streaming service, Disney Plus, topping 100 million subscribers since launching just 16 months ago. That was fast. It's an incredible feat (laughs) for a company that many analysts said was a little late to the streaming game following Netflix doing this for years around the world. So all you naysayers, check that out. Because a little perspective, (laughs) Netflix, which is the pioneer when it comes to streaming, they finished 2020 with almost 204 million subscribers globally, but they've been building that in the last 14 years. So it's taken a while. Let's get some perspective on this because our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, columnist Tara LaChapelle, who covers the business of entertainment and telecom and deals, she's with us right now on the phone in New Jersey. And you remind us, Tara, that Netflix may actually be missing out on some of the money that Disney is raking in. First of all, when you saw that number from Disney Plus, what did you think? Well, you know, Disney's growth has been so impressive, but it has to do with the power of its brand globally and this idea which I wrote about today that you know Netflix is a moment Disney is a lifetime you know that their their brands resonate for generations and they have all these you know products that come out after the films and it just kind of stokes this continued excitement around Disney's brands 
Gotta say, that just sounded like a Disney commercial. I'm not, I'm not gonna point fingers there, Tara, but that was so, Netflix is a moment, but Disney is a lifetime, is that what you said? <laughs> or forever? So, well, you already forgot though, so you Sorry. know. Sorry. So it's not. No, it's good, it's good though, I promise you. <laughs> so Tara, I, I mean, it, I think back to when Disney was talking about this a few years ago and all the, well, not all the analysts, but some very prominent analysts came out and said, hey, Disney, you are pretty late to the streaming game. Why, why do you think that Disney's Disney Plus's rise has caught so many off guard. And it, look, it's not all the pandemic. The, the growth was pretty quick in the few months before the pandemic began, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that if anything, you know, the pandemic, the pandemic made it harder for a lot of these companies because, you know, you, you want to launch this new app, you want to have a lot of content on it. And of course, Hollywood Studios, their productions got shut down for a really long time. Some of them are still struggling to get back up and running. And so it kind of caught these apps off guard where you didn't really have a lot of new stuff to watch. Thankfully, Disney Plus had The Mandalorian, but Netflix has had a whole heap of stuff and they're still releasing a new movie every week this year. So it made it hard to compete with that. And Disney really shined through as the only company that could do it. And again, I think it's just people know, they expect quality when Disney's name is on it. They know if it's Star Wars, if it's Marvel, if it's Pixar, it's going to be quality. Parents know that the it's going to be family friendly, that they can count on that and not have to worry what their kids are coming across while they're on an iPad and the parent is working from home and distracted. So I think that that brand power really shined through last year. Netflix sells a moment, Disney sells a lifetime. It's in the headline. Sorry, Tara. Um, but I do love it. But listen, anybody who's right, you know, been covering Disney, I've spent some time with them over the years. And I mean, when it comes to synergies and having a brand and taking something and running with it, and it's on the big screen, it's a ride in one of the theme parks, it's uh, merchandise, it's Halloween costumes, it's games. I mean, they get it, how to reach out to the consumer on multiple levels. Yeah, I mean, that virtuous cycle is what Netflix is really missing. And so I was kind of arguing in my column this week that Netflix can do that. They can they can do the merchandise licensing that Disney does, albeit maybe on a smaller level. The reason that they really haven't is because they don't have any franchises that they could build around. You know, Stranger Things is probably the closest that Netflix got to that. And even that, I don't think, was quite there. You know, that wasn't a, a Marvel. That wasn't Star Wars. So... I think Netflix, if they can do some fine-tuning to their content strategy and really come up with a, a franchise, a series that has legs that they can carry on for years and years, like uh, HBO's Game of Thrones is what I compared it to, if they can build something like that, you can build a really profitable merchandise licensing business selling consumer products that are pretty high margin because you're not manufacturing them, you're just slapping your logo on it. And I, I think that's an opportunity for Netflix as it starts to run out of growth avenues. Can I just say Stars, Outlander? Man, they've just slapped it on everything. And it's been, you know, a whole other merchandise line. I think Game of Thrones, too. That, and, and look, I think, Terry, <laughs> All right, that's a, a big one. You make a really good point about the chess sets and the boom in chess sets following The Queen's Gambit, which was a, a show that was just massively popular for the streaming platform. So, so what does this look like? Because Netflix has been... It's been, you know, relatively pure when it comes to the mm. type of content that it does. And I mean pure in the sense of, like, you know... We're not doing live sports, right? We tried the talk show thing. It didn't really work. We're not doing ads. So how does Netflix do this in a way that's, that's, that's Netflixy? Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult, right? Because they haven't really shown how they can. I think, you know, some of it is just emulating what companies like Disney and HBO have done, which is taking the time to invest in a series that you can carry on for a long time. And Netflix is kind of notorious for 
having mini series and canceling things just as they're getting going. And it keeps the app pretty fresh and it keeps them, you know, cycling through lots of content to, to please subscribers who are just binging endlessly. But at the same time, I think subscribers would like to have a franchise they can really stick with, you know, like Stranger Things, like Cobra Kai. I think the Cobra Kai uh, is kind of becoming that, but they need something bigger. And, you know, I think it would make sense for them. And like you point out, they're resisting advertising. Right now, other companies are making money off of Netflix's content regularly. Facebook and Instagram, when, you know, Tiger King or something goes viral on their service, that's boosting their ad business. And Netflix is saying no to ads. So if they're going to continue to do that and not take a piece of the ad pie, why not take a piece of the consumer product pie? Well, and it's interesting, too, if you think about the cost of content, right? We constantly are, are talking about it. It's not inexpensive, and that's going to be what's going to keep, um, you know, watchers uh, and users of the service, you know, on the service and willing to, to pay for those monthly fees. It is a way, if you can tap into the consumer market, and to some extent, Tara, a way to offset those costs. Yeah, I mean, make some more money off of these programs. You know, Queen's Gambit, it was a miniseries that if you added up the minutes for all the seven episodes, it's six and a half hours. And it was over in six and a half hours, and they spent an awful lot of money making such a great uh, story. So I think that if they could have, you know, carried that on a little longer, had had some sort of um, themed chessboards that they sold in tandem with this, that really would have helped you know, pay for the cost of these of these big programs that are just awfully expensive to make, as you said. And I have to say, I think there was also, from a woman's perspective, there was a fashion tie-in, there was a makeup tie-in, because I actually, oh, there's some there's someone, that I, a company that I buy from, and you know they had a model in the vein of the actress and how she looked on, on, on screen, and they were definitely tapping into it. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. You have all these companies really capitalizing on Netflix the virality of their content and Netflix isn't isn't so you know how can they take some of that money for themselves and I think that's what investors are hoping to see what they would call monetization of this content beyond just how many subscribers can you get to sign up I'm thinking Ozark themed hotel for Netflix (laughs) what do you think that is wild (laughs) no that's one I think we'd pass on (laughs) I'm just still you know it's this is such a good point Tara because Disney is the company that has created so many powerful franchises and they've done it not just you know from the ground up but also through acquisitions and Netflix just doesn't have that is there any indication that the company is thinking about those longer term franchises I mean what in your opinion have been the big successes uh, apart from Stranger Things which by the way I could not make it any episodes into season three you know i couldn't either and it's funny because you know they it do just have died that season fans. for me yeah and they, they have a lot of fans on stranger things but again it's, it's not as big as when you think of like game of thrones or as enduring of a brand and so you know I, it's hard to name other examples i I, yeah. I think cobra kai was the first one that i saw where i was like okay i can't but, wait but that was a youtube season. that was a youtube originally right that was a, a youtube right. premium show Right, and that's the other trick with, you know, if Netflix is going to go into merchandise licensing, it needs to be around shows that they ho- they own wholly. And so, you know, it, they don't, for a long yeah. time, they were, you know, just airing other people's material. So they need to have their own programs that they can really build out in order to do this. So can you explain that a little bit? Because I think there's a little bit of confusion around to what extent Netflix actually owns its quote-unquote original content. I know it's changed in, in recent years, but even with something like House of Cards, which was known mm-hmm. to be, you know, it's it's among the first original pieces of programming, Netflix didn't actually have all the rights to that one. So, so what does Netflix need to do in order to control this from the beginning all the way to merchandising? 
Right. I mean, they're starting to do that with some of their newer originals, as they call them. But, you know, if you think back to some of the more popular stuff that was on their app, like I'm thinking of 13 Reasons Why was a really, um, you know, interesting, phenomenal show that drew a lot of controversy and discussion. And it was labeled Netflix because it was on Netflix, but really Paramount TV Studios made that, which is why Netflix needs to be looking over its shoulder at competitors, because as much as people kind of dismiss the new Paramount Plus app, Paramount TV Studio makes an awful lot of great shows. They made Jack Ryan for Amazon Prime. So now that those studios are starting to prioritize their own streaming apps and not sell as much stuff to Netflix, what is that going to mean for Netflix's pipeline? Hey, one thing I want to ask you, um, there was, uh, I think, a conversation you had on the Bloomberg Opinion podcast about specifically going back to Disney um, about their streaming service and how it's been kind of carrying Disney stock um, for a while. Do you think it ultimately can become the financial backbone for Disney? You know, I, I don't know because it, it's it's hard to replace the, the legacy money that the media networks generate from advertising, from affiliate fees and the box office. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if Disney Plus on its own can do that, but I, what I do see happening is over time, Disney and some of the bigger companies continuing this acquisition spree and then these smaller ones going away where you have a less fragmented streaming environment and there's fewer companies controlling all these services and maybe that's the way to start making more money. I also think that, you know, if we believe that these apps are going to remain commercial free we are really fooling ourselves i mean they're not going to be able to resist the, the money that comes from advertisers and advertisers are really after this space so yeah. it's possible but we don't you can't see it yet because disney plus isn't making money yet right. but maybe you know years down the road as this industry changes it starts to become more of a, of a real you know financial uh driver for them yeah just a little note to self it's still not making money just saying um good stuff tara thank you so much bloomberg opinion columnist tara la chapelle she covers the business of entertainment telecommunications and deals for us here at bloomberg thanks for listening to bloomberg business week download the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com and you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m eastern on bloomberg radio or watch us on youtube search bloomberg global news